You're listening to KDRT 95.7 FM in Davis, California, and I'm Justin Cox. This show is called Smashed and Rehashed, and it's a pretty loose and casual interview show with local musicians and people who are generally active in the local culture, um, whether musically, artistically, and um, at some point I'm going to move even f beyond that as well. But our guest today is Sam Hawk, who is someone who I've gotten to know um, starting probably about four years ago when my family moved to Winners. I actually moved back to Winners. Um, I lived there before when I was younger. Um, but I've come back there as an adult, and it was sort of a period in my life when I was getting heavily back into music after some period of uh, going kind of quiet on that front, especially on the songwriting front. Um, Sam, I'm going to go ahead and have you step up to the microphone and say hi. You can pick either mic. They're both, they're both, go, they're both on right oh, now. Oh, cool. No stereo stuff. There we go. Hello, yeah. I'm Sam. Um, let me see here. I'll turn off the other one so we're not stereo. Now, because I know that I'm in here with an audiophile who knows the, <laughs> the cause and effect of every single thing that the microphones will do. Um, when do, do you remember offhand when, well, real quick, just to get a little bit more bio type information here, Sam plays in a group called Evertree with Lori Hawk, his wife, and Finding Fable with Lori and, say his full name again right now. Kevin Fagan. Kevin Fagan, who hosted, who Sam also worked with to do um, Artist Connection, a show that was a part of Davis Media Access that is, the whole archive exists on YouTube and can be found, and it's an awesome, um, it's an awesome window into a lot of the cool independent local music that's happening in this area and beyond. Um, when did, when did, so, so Sam had started an open mic at Rootstock, which was a wine place in winters with a really cool back room and a, a just a really fun back room and it generated a ton of attention right around the time i moved there when did that start um 2009 so around 2009 guess, yeah. Yeah. How, how did that idea come to happen like what had you been hosting open mics before or why did rootstock come to be yeah we were uh laurie and i were helping out someone who was running an open mic in benicia and uh that was the first time we'd ever spent any real time at open mics. And we were just blown away at the whole family kind of ambiance. Uh, it was very welcoming. You know, you could go in there uh, if you were, a, a uh, you know, only playing guitar for a, a, a couple of months or if you were a pro. And uh, people just treated you, everybody the same. And it was just a very, very cool thing. I fully agree. That's kind of the beauty of it is I just described that, when I, about eight, eight, nine, eight years ago, I played in a band. We played a lot. I was writing more songs. I was writing a lot of songs, not necessarily good songs, but some of them were good. And I was sort of just creatively in motion. And then I went to grad school. I had, I don't know what, how these things happen in your life, but that stopped. And then after I had a kid and lived in Davis, I sort of made myself go to a couple of open mics just to like finish a little seed of a song I had started after like three years of writing nothing. And then after playing like one or two of those that were pretty sparsely attended and, and quiet, I moved to Winners, and that coincided with, I think, a, a, um, the Rootstock Open Mic was, had been going for a little bit then. But it was around the time that I went, it, that place was filling up. You can tell it was catching momentum. Right. Um, what happened was one evening, uh, Lori and I were just walking down Main Street. It was kind of after everything sort of closed. And the owner of Rootstock was um, was closing her shop, Linda Hines, and uh, she uh, 
just on a lark, I said, you know, this is a nice place. You, you need some live music in here. And she said, well, why don't you come in and play? Nice. So uh, we made a date to come in and play, and we actually did a performance there. And um, she liked it a lot, so she asked us back to do another one. Is this in the front space? Of the yeah, back? in the front yeah. space. So all this happened in the front space. And then uh, after about the third performance, I said to her, look, have you th ever thought of having an open mic here? I mean, you know, there's lots of artists in, in town, and, uh, and they don't really have a place to play. And she just thought it was a great idea. So uh, our first open mic, we had four attendees. Yeah. That's and, um, and then 18 months later, we had packed the back room to beyond capacity. So it grew pretty fast. I was, um, I was coming in probably right as it was reaching that, started, starting to become packed on a regular basis. I had, and I had a kid who was young enough to come and my wife loved coming and then sometime a little later on he aged into like being the kind of kid who would pull like porcelain porcelain <laughs> items right. off of shelves and stuff like that but it so so you you two did it for a few years and i remember feeling i mean not only was there a ton of good music happening there like you said it's a range the, this open mic scene you, you have to create a you have to Actually, I'm curious. I should ask this in the form of a question. How much do you feel like it is on you to create a culture of acceptance at all levels and experimentation? And it just felt like it had this large range and the sound was so good and it was just was such a comfortable place. Well, it's totally on the host. The host really creates the, uh, the culture of the open mic. And so uh, and for Laurie and I both, it was really, really important to um, you know, come up with a kind of a, a space where anybody could come in and play. And if you go to open mics in other places, uh, you know, they'll have their favorites and, they'll, and the favorites will get specials well, yeah. where they'll, they'll play a little longer and stuff like that. And we just felt that was kind of, that's fine, you know, but that's not what we wanted to do. So uh, our motto was, you know, you hang your rock star credentials at the door. Nice. And... Uh, and everyone's everyone's equal when they come in, and we worked really hard to um, to kind of y you know uh, treat everyone equally, whether they were you know brand new players or people that we knew could uh, go get a three or four hundred dollar gig anytime they wanted to. Yeah, um, as far as I know, I mean, I'm sure there were there have been open mics and winners over time, but as far as I know, there wasn't something happening at that moment. You two did it for a while. It passed off to Joaquin and Mike, who did it back there for a while, and then Rootstock merged with Berryessa Gap across the street, and now they have it going with Nancy and Johnny. Um, well, something I'm curious about as the person, especially because a lot of this happened right around the time I did have that baby, um, as the person who shows up like as it's getting going or... How hard is it to be the person hosting it, meaning you're there to set up, you're there before everybody, and you're there all the way until the very end yeah, and then you're leaving? And I, and I ask that question in part because any person who plays music, um, it just feels like a good thing to appreciate of the people putting on the open mic because they're putting in a lot of time and energy. Right? Yeah, yeah. What What's that like? Um, well, uh, it's a long day. I usually would get there... Uh, at noon to set up the equipment and then go back and uh, take a nap and have uh, 
uh, an early dinner, and then we'd come in at six, and s people would start signing up, and then and the whole thing would start at seven. So um, setting up equipment when I was doing it, it took about two hours, and this is you know big speakers, a lot of heavy stuff, and uh, and lights, and then you have to check everything to make sure it's all working, and you do a sound check, so you usually have to have you know, somebody around that can play a guitar or, or sing through the mic so you can get it kind of dialed in. All of those things are really important because when the people get there, you don't want to put them through any kind of thing. You want to make the experience so that, you know, they get their guitar tuned, they walk up on stage, they play their song, they talk to the people, you know, and then they, they walk off and it's all very smooth. And if you you know, if you have little glitches like, you know, feedback problems or, you know, something stops working, that, that, can, that can sort of, you know, um, mess with the momentum and the flow yeah. of the whole thing. So. Nice. So I'm going to ask you um, a good amount about how you got into music and playing music, but while we're on sort of that subject, how did you get into the, the sound side of things? I mean, you're, you're, the sound in that room was particularly great and comfortable from playing an acoustic guitar and singing and hearing yourself and you just could feel that room yeah. and you and you i know that from the perspective of playing at it and being in the audience but how did you get into that both in terms of set the setting up the sound for a live event like that and also recording because i know you've done a lot with recording right and where, where is that so like um the story goes back quite a ways yeah. actually uh when I met Laurie, I'd I'd uh, I'd just been through ten years of uh, you know rock band type situations and got kind of disgusted with the whole band breakup, girlfriend problem, drug problem, other issues that happens with you know with bands. So uh, I'd done uh, I was a single performer, a solo performer, and um, and when I met Laurie and we got married. Uh, she promised me that we would not form any bands or get involved in music. And we were just going to have a normal life with kids and, and all of that. Because uh, I was ready for that. You know, I was a little older than her. Yeah. Uh, but she was an amazing singer. And we would sit around the living room. Uh, I'd play guitar and she'd sing and we'd have a great time. And one day we were driving through um, a, a place down near San Luis Obispo and passed by a yard sale, and some woman had a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder set up, and it was she wanted $5 for it, and we kind of looked at it, and she said, just take it. Nice. So we took it home and started uh, and made a Christmas tape for our relatives, and then uh, and that kind of started the whole interest in recording, and so uh, we found a studio where the engineer was also a really good teacher, and uh, I, I, I've been a technician professionally my whole adult life and so I had a natural interest in the kind of stuff he was doing so he agreed to you know uh, to teach me at least the basics of good engineering and uh, from there it just uh, it just you know the rest is history I, I learned from him and then we went to a, another studio when we kind of outgrew him and uh, the guy that ran the other studio was just such a good teacher and yeah. such a good mentor and never pushy and and always subtle and uh and I love him to death and uh 
His name is Bruce Tambling. He works down in San Jose now. Nice. Foothill College, I think. Um, but Bruce, um, yeah, I'll never forget this. Uh, we had worked and spent a lot of money on a four-song EP in Bruce's studio. And um, uh, we were listening to the final mix of this thing. And I, I was feeling really satisfied. And uh, we were both excited. And uh, so I looked over at Bruce and I said, so what do you think? And he said, did you get what you want? And I just, it, it kind of, the way he said it just made me pause for a second. And I said, well, I think so. Uh, what do you think? And he said, well, it's not radio, but if, you, if, if it's what you want, then you got your money's worth, right? And that just, that was an epiphany. That's cool. Yeah, and I cool. said, what is radio? So he pulled five or six CDs out of his library, you know, current recording projects. And he said, this is radio. And the difference between what we'd recorded and what these other folks had recorded was uh, several orders of magnitude. I mean, it was just, it was really different. And I thought, well, how can this be? I mean, I got the same equipment, same engineer, same everything. Yeah. And, uh, and... And so he spent an hour off the clock. You know, this is a $70 an hour studio. And yeah. In those days, that was a lot of money. He spent an hour off the clock pointing out the details of, of why our four-song EP wasn't radio quality. Are we talking, like, instruments to layer over or mixing or, like, like – It was, it was a, a, a whole list of things, things like uh, – Instruments that weren't exactly on the click, so the band didn't sound tight. Yeah. Vocals that had little places where they were a little pitchy. Um, uh, the um, just just a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Just the, the actual sound quality. And so uh, the one, the guitar wasn't tuned. <laughs> you know, twelve string. You, you have a problem with that? Oh, yeah, that's a. So uh, so that started us on a journey of uh, trying to achieve perfection with our music, and I've. I've taken those lessons to live sound, and anytime I deal with sound, uh, I'm always thinking, "Is this radio?" That's that's why it fascinates me to talk to you about this. Is that it's like music is art, right? Songwriting is art, but this whole other side of it is science. More, you know, it's like a different thing. And I'm admittedly pretty bad at it. Like I'm pretty, I'm very, I know how to not mess it up by keeping it simple. So I try to stay out of my own way and do that because right. I think a lot of people can mess themselves up. But I, and especially having gotten to know you, know you over the years and, and interacted on, on, on the Internet and whatnot, I know you're into some pretty far out science. <laughs> you're, like, you're going down. You're not afraid to dig into that stuff. So this it seems like this is almost like it's a it's it's a. It's a writing music and playing music is a playground, but it sounds like that technical side is also well. It's a, and again, you know, there have always been two schools of thought out there. You know, the, this one school of thought says, "Look, it just needs to sound natural. It, we want an organic sound." Yeah. Okay. And uh, and then the other school of thought is, well, it needs to be, you know produced because it's, it's going to be recorded and once it's recorded it's, it's cast in stone and you can't do anything about it so if you have a little mistake on the recording 
You're going to hear that mistake every single time you play the music. I've got those, and I hear them. <laughs> some of them, some of them, it's weird. Like I, I'm cool with, I'm fine with something being pretty raw, and certain little things are like an interesting idiosyncrasy or something that exists, and then some are like, oh, that's bad. Like right. that's a bad. So my philosophy sort of um, evolved to the point where. Uh, I'm all fine with an organic sound if you're trying to capture that moment. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to do that, you want the mistakes. You want the, the changes in timing. You want you want the little vocal mistakes because you're trying to capture the moment, and that's really important. Um, but if you're making a record that's that you're going to play that people are going to buy and it's going to be out there, you don't want any of that stuff. Yeah. You want You want something – you want to capture the song – Exactly as you've envisioned it. Yeah, and so uh, and that's an entirely different deal. I mean, you don't make compromises. You 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 got to clarify your vision and get very clear on how you want that song to sound, and then you do everything you can to achieve that sound. Nice, cool. Well, I'm gonna play um, "Stranger in a Strange Land" by Evertree right now. I should have tested this out earlier to be sure that I'm gonna get exactly what I want out of it, but. Um, and then I'm going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit about what KDRT has going on next week and we're going to talk about your music. Just for a moment, baby. 
So that was Stranger in a Strange Land by Evertree. When did when did uh, you guys record that? Or do you remember? I, Ballpark. I don't know. About 2011, maybe. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay, well, before we get into a little bit more about your the various music projects you've had, I just want to let people know that KDRT this coming week, um, the week of... Because we're gonna, these are gonna be re airing a couple times. The week of the twenty third, we'll be doing their annual fundraiser. Last year, they raised money. You all helped them raise uh, five thousand dollars to put up a new antenna. That t antenna is now up and boosting the signal for this station as we speak. And um, it's time to carry that momentum. So, any if you can uh, help support this station, any amount is is deeply appreciated. You can go to kdrt.org/donate, and you can do that. And it's tax deductible. It's tax deductible. And so spread the word and support the station. We'd really appreciate it. Um, Sam and I are people who got involved because we play music and got to know people here, and they make this opportunity possible for people, and it's really cool. Um, so how did you get into – so I talked to you about how you got into the to sound and everything. What about picking up your first instrument? And, and I, I don't need to, like – it's this is a short show, so we only have about seven minutes, so we don't need to run the whole entire history. But how how did you get into music, and how did that um, path wind to what you're doing now? Uh, I wasn't really that serious about music until I got in the Navy and uh, met a guy who played a twelve string guitar, and uh, I was just uh, I was hooked. After so it that. started. You started with twelve string. Yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, and. Uh, because the 12-string really isn't that hard to play. There's just th certain things you can't do. It's not a matter I, – I don't ask that about as like, oh, that's crazy, that's hard. I think it's uh, – it's I mean, on just – the fact that you met that person is the reason, right? It'd never be the first one you pick up at a music store. It'd never be oh, – it's, no. it's like awesome that you have it. I hear it in your music and love it. Yeah, I love it at the open mic. It's a, it's, it's a cool, unique thing. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, – it really sings to my soul. It, it, it's, um, um, I, I think it was just the all the subharmonics, the, you know, the actual sound of it. Uh, the guy that introduced me to the instrument uh, was an amazing guy, and, and he would write songs, compose songs on the fly, like in real time. Wow. And so uh, you meet people like this from time to time, but they're pretty rare. And... Um, so I was fascinated, impressed, and uh, and the journey started off uh, uh, with a lot of intensity. I spent a lot of time practicing, and um, uh, and that that I I did that throughout the Navy. And then when I got out of the Navy four years later, I wanted to start a rock and roll band. Nice. And so uh, I got uh, at this point, are you singing and writing, or are you just playing the guitar, or learning the instrument? I'm playing the guitar mainly, although I did write. Uh, I don't know, maybe 20 songs, and a, and a couple of those I still play today at open mics. Whoa, that's awesome. And uh, so uh, switched over to a Gibson SG with a, a Fender amp and uh, and did that for uh, a few years. We we It was a lot of fun. We had a couple of really neat bands, and uh, but there was always this kind of low-level chaos that was running around the band because... You know, when you put a band together, it's like a family. I mean, yeah. everybody's everybody's uh, issues and everything you share in that. Totally. You know, and so 
whether uh, they're big issues or just personality quirks. And anything. anything. It's all of it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, if they have a problem with their girlfriend, suddenly it's the band's problem. You yeah. Know? And, uh, uh, or if they have a, uh, a substance abuse problem, it's the band's problem. You know? Yeah. And so, anyway, uh, we th- I, I think our biggest gig doing rock bands was a, a concert we did out at Lake Comanche for about 3,000 folks. And that was a, a, kind of the apex. It was uh, something I'll always remember. That's awesome. And then, uh, and then the ba- that band broke up, and I just had decided that that was enough for me. And then I got divorced, and then I got tired of the Bay Area, and I moved up to Seattle and, um, and was just playing around in clubs and places up there. And uh, then I ran into Lori, and uh, we got married and That's came back awesome. down, and I concentrated back on, uh, on uh, 12 string. Yeah. So I kind of put the, the electric guitar away, although I've got a, a Les Paul in the, in, the, you know, in the closet and a bass, and, and I pull them out to put guitar tracks down on the recordings. I, did, I played the bass on this last song. And cool. So... Does do do ever does Evertree have any shows coming up, or Finding Fable? Finding Fable just had a show in Goldfield, Nevada, nice. and uh, we uh, everyone's gotten to be really busy. I'm I'm retired, and so I'm working on projects. Uh, Lori's got a really long job, and uh, and Kevin is a news 